Welcome to Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and hope you enjoy this edition of Bolin's Alley. You can find out more about us at alleninvestments.com. You know, there's a lot of interest in artificial intelligence, good old AI, right? It's something right out of science fiction movies. I And I love science fiction movies. Well, it's not just out of science fiction movies. It's also out of Steven Spielberg movies. Well, that's true. Isn't that one of the first really mainstream kind of ideas? You're right. Yeah. yeah. Let's not forget. Let's not forget our little guy. So I, I just, I love all those things, right? Well, the one of the biggest things that's come out that has caught everybody's attention for both good and bad is good old chat GPT, right? It was launched last fall. I believe November, maybe. But it was fall of 2022. And it is... Coming out of education, it has already completely changed the landscape of education, both at high school and at higher ed, because it's so easy to have chat GPT write papers for you. And, you know, it's it's a real mess. But I'm going to throw in an even scarier term today. And Robin, I know you are already <laughs> up on this. No, my, when he said a scarier term, my eyes just got really big. <laughs> and we're going to talk about... Quantum mechanics. Mm. Mm. I need background music for that. You really do. It's like quantum <laughs> mechanics. Well, anyway, what I want to start with is just a, a, a silly little example of what ChatGPT can do. So I'm sitting there and I'm preparing for this today because I knew I really wanted to talk about this. Because before we're done in this program, I want people to really understand that what happens in artificial intelligence and what happens at the subatomic level of quantum computing is really what we as individuals can experience through whatever we want to call it. I call it the Holy Spirit, being the religious person I am. But things outside of time and outside of our normal existence that can have impact on decisions. And part of those probably happen indeed, at the quantum level. So I'm going to try to draw some analogies, not just about the science and the neat kind of fun things, but but how we react to individuals, how we respond to these different types of things makes us who we are and how we can hopefully weed out the sort of the weaker aspects of this and more dangerous ones and make it more for good if we possibly can, where we understand this. So I got this bright idea. I said, well, I'm, I'm preparing to do this program. I wonder if I just asked ChatGPT to print out a couple of pages on what a podcast would sound like if I was going to interview somebody about artificial intelligence <laughs> and quantum computing. What the heck? Let's see what they say. So I'm going to paraphrase some of this. But here is, and by the way, this is... By chat GPT, this is not me, all right? I just want to give everybody a preface on this. Uh, but I kind of enjoyed it. I tweaked it a little bit, I, I have to admit. I, I, I did tweak some of it. But here it is, all right? The host, that would be me. Welcome, listeners, to another exciting episode of Bowling Alley, all right? The podcast in this case is going to explore the fascinating world of technology. I'm your host, and today we have an extraordinary topic to dive into. Don't you love how they put these sentences together in these? Isn't this wonderful? It's very dynamic. It is dynamic. It's very it exciting. Is. It is. The power of combining 
AI with quantum computing. I am thrilled. By the way, these two people don't exist. Just to let you know. I'm thrilled to be joined by two brilliant experts in the field. Dr. AC, I'm just going to use their initials, an AI researcher, and Dr. DF, a quantum computing scientist. Welcome to the show. Which one would you like to be? I don't deserve to be either. <laughs> I'll be DF, I guess. <laughs> Tim, who do you want to be? Amanda, who do you want to be? <laughs> Boy, oh, I have, gosh. Nobody wants to volunteer today. Well, anyway, Dr. C, thank you. It's great to be here. Dr. F, pleasure to join you. Dr. Bolin, looking forward to our discussion. Well, let's start by laying the groundwork, Dr. F. Could you briefly explain what the heck quantum computing is and how it differs from classical computing? Now, again, let's see what ChatGPT thinks about this, okay? Certainly, quantum computing leverages the principles of quantum mechanics to perform computations. While classical computers use bits to represent information as zeros and ones, quantum computers use quantum bits, or qubits, which can exist in a superposition of states. This property allows quantum computers to perform calculations much faster than classical computers for certain types of problems. Okay, I'm going to apologize right now. <laughs> I hope you're still listening. Oh my gosh. And now you understand why I did not want to be either doctor. Um, but seriously. But this this is what's happening at this level is that we're starting to deal with things that don't really make sense if we think about them. Let me ask you a quick question. We didn't just get here since November of 2022. Oh, no. So my question is obviously broader. When did we start getting here? When did this really this this conversation, the broader conversation, really begin. Do you have that? 1937. Yeah. I knew it had to be well before the time I crashed. There ended. was an unbelievable group of brilliant scientists that got together over, and I believe it was Vienna in about 1937. And, you know, Einstein was in there. Bohr was in there. I mean, all, you know, Heisenberg, all of the big names searching coming out of the theory of relativity and then you started getting into these issues of the atomic level which made no sense to Einstein because it went completely against gravity but at the the you know atomic level we couldn't make physics match what okay. what what was true at the macro level and what appeared to be true at the micro level didn't really talk well to one another because you had these things to where a wave a, a, an atom, a proton, an electron, could actually behave both as a particle and as a wave. And you didn't really know where that electron was until you tried to measure it. At, up until that point, there was an infinite number of probabilities as to where that electron might actually be. Mm -hmm. Thus, that's when they start talking about being in a whole lot of different states. It's because it could be, it literally could be anywhere. So we're talking beyond even the fourth dimension. Oh, we're my, yes. Yeah, we're talking infinity. Yes. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And, and so what happens then when you try to measure it, that's when all these other possibilities or in the terminology of science, all these other states collapse into the one you actually observe. And so as soon as you identify it, there it is. But up until that point, you can't tell where it's at. Okay. And, and again, that makes no sense. It, it, just, it just doesn't. 
And so as you as you talk about this, this has been something going on for close to 100 years, really, if you go back to when theory of relativity was first came out in like 1915, I believe is when Einstein published the general theory. And so you've got all of these scientists, and they argued for years and years and years about you know, how, how insane that must be. It doesn't make sense to work that way. You know, how can you have, I mean, it just, it boggles your mind, right? And, uh, but everything that they try, in fact, you even get down to what's, what Planck identified is, is the, and there was a mathematical number that they couldn't get everything to match unless they put in this plug figure. All right. Accountants know what plug figures mm-hmm. are, right? Right. <laughs> a plug figure in accounting simply means I can't make these two statements balance. It's so the, here's what it's, it's going to lev- be. It's the leveling number. It's the leveling number. Right. Well, there's a Planck constant named for Max Planck that came up with it. That makes all of this work. Well, why does it work? Well, nobody knows. It just does, so we use it. So that's sort of the level of, of understanding. And again, I get back to this idea that because these things happen outside of our three-dimensional time, plus time is a fourth, that we really don't have any good verbal way or even written way to describe these things that happen outside of our sphere of understanding. We just know they happen. And as science is now getting to this point to where there's so much more data and there's so many more ways to think about this data that the danger comes up with now, wow, what if I can start doing all these computations at the atomic level where there's all these multiple states rather than just zero and one? How much does that improve the power and does that power then make a lot of our security things that we have, cybersecurity, codes on credit cards, banks, does that make now what we thought to be unbreakable, breakable? Right. In other words, maybe this is accurate or not, numbers you could say for a long time are black and white. They don't lie. Yes. And I'm going to give you a great example of how something in you illustrates that When we come back from this break, we'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Boland. And and before the break, Robin had this most insightful question. Oh, brother. (laughs) But but it it leads to a, a recent Wall Street Journal article that came out a couple of came out a couple of weeks ago. You put it on my desk. I did, as a matter of fact. And it illustrates the difference between hearing and seeing. So what I want to kind of go into this, and and I'm going to use a lot of the article, and I'm going to try to just keep it – I don't want to say keep it simple because I know you can get it. I just don't want to get down into the weeds too much here. Okay. You enjoy getting into the weeds. I do. Yeah. And sometimes you have to kind of grab me and bring Every me back. Every once in a while, we just have to kind of bring you back. Yeah, you do. You do. And you do a great job of that, by the way. So – Let's talk about hearing, and, and this is near and dear to me right now because I have had sinus back up for the last week and a half. I hear nothing out of my left ear. I know you told me that. It's, it's in, in where we live, that's not uncommon for anybody, right? No, I mean, no, we, it's all, not. we all get the opportunity to experience that. We do, but it drives me nuts. Yes. So, anyway, because when we hear, we sense pressure waves, all right? Okay. Commonly called, guess what? Sound waves. And this is brilliant, right? Which then ping on our eardrums. 
well, channeled through some very impressive natural engineering, right? These sound waves set off vibrations in our inner ear. And what then happens is it's sort of like they're keyboards of a pair of, as the article described it, inverse pianos, okay? The sounds play the keys on the keyboard, which I love that. Then what happens is you've got neurons that then will fire in response to this sort of tune that the keys are playing, generating the signals that our brains, guess what, interpret as music or speech or whatever. Now, two things, well, probably more than two, but at least two things are noteworthy in this, all right? First, we naturally break these wave patterns down into pure tones. It's just, that's, that's what we do. And with a little bit of my math background, that my analogy is mathematicians learned how to use equations to perform that very same sort of thing back in the 19th century, and it's called a Fourier analysis. If you really like Fourier analysis, you can look it up. I, I have long since forgot how to actually apply it, okay? But it's similar to what spectrometers do, Okay ranging from uh, maybe what uh, Isaac Newton, even going way back, what he did with prisms to break up the way light, light goes through. Mm -hmm. Okay. But actually, the way a prism works isn't the way our eyes work, which is what I'm going to get to here in a minute. All right. Because what the prism did is it broke light into its different frequencies. All right. So that's one of the two things that's noteworthy. Second, the response is what is called graded. The louder a tone, the more forceful the motion of a corresponding key. Now, I only took piano lessons for a very short period of time as a child. Okay, um, Through a lot of things with my dad being sick for multiple years and in the hospital, we had to sell our piano when I was like five or six. Mm. So I had barely gotten by chopsticks at that point. But I, one of the things I loved to do was the pedals. Right, you hit the because you could get a really forceful sound on how you played. Fortissimo, the, right? Fortissimo, mm -hmm. absolutely. I end up playing the clarinet, so at least I know some of those words, right? <laughs> anyway, only treble clef, bass clef. I'm no good. So anyway, how hard you could hit that pedal would give you the forceful attack. Well, same sort of thing here. The louder the tone, the more forceful the motion of that key, where the pressure on the key determines whether it gives a louder or softer response. That's what our ears do. Now, the article drew that as opposed to what a harpsichord does, whose strings can only be plucked at a constant volume, which I found rather fascinating. So we've got our ears that sort of hear things, they break them into sounds, but then we have vision. And vision is entirely different from hearing in both of those two ways that I just described. Light vibrates faster than any sort of engineering process that we understand could handle. But yet, our visual perception exploits the fact that it comes in, okay, you got to wait for this one. It comes in packets of energy, photons. Light comes in, because again, it comes in packets, it's waves, it's particle. It's waves, it's particle. It's both things. And because it comes in packets of energy, this can trigger changes in the shapes of our molecules in our eyes that are seeing the light. That is quantum theory. So what you're telling me 
is that the shape of my eyes, the, the molecules that make up my eyes. That, that vision, come, that light comes in. Are being, are, are changing, restructuring based on what the light is that's coming in. Exactly. Not to be confused with our iris that. No, no. It's, this is a little different. Right. Okay, and I because I mean naturally I would go there. Well, well, my iris opens up bigger or it closes. And it, this is very this is, different. This is different. Okay, for most people, color vision involves three kinds of what are called receptor proteins in the cone cells of your retina. Okay, photons either induce shape changes or they don't. The effect is all or nothing. It's not graded, and typically, if we talk about quantum mechanics. They could be anything. They're very chancy. They're high risk. We don't know. We can't predict exactly whether a given photon will trigger a given receptor. We can tell you the odds. Again, I can tell you it's a 70% chance, an 80% chance. Based on the photon's wavelength, that is the color tone it represents. The wavelength is going to be the color tone that's in there. And which type of receptor protein is actually going to be involved? What visual neurons, quote-unquote, get to see compared to all this inverse piano of hearing is more like the keyboard of a poorly tuned harpsichord with three keys that only hear one thing. Since so many different combination of photons can produce the same pattern of probabilities, many distinct patterns of light produce the same color perception. And in that way, believe it or not, because we have very limited colors we actually see, we really are colorblind. I mean, that is unbelievable to me. When I think about the color that we can see, I mean, if you're not impacted by yeah. color and eye issues, yeah, we already see a lot. But it's there's more. It's a microcosm so of more. what we're seeing. Yeah, there's so much. Well, think here. This I think will help make that make more sense in dim light. If you're in a dimly lit room, you run into another limit of what our vision can do based on this unpredictability. When there's only a few photons to work with, the cone cells become unreliable and we switch over to what's called night vision based on different cells, the rods in your eye. The nocturnal harpsichord, the one that's operating in dimly lit at night, it has one key, not three. So you know what we perceive? Shades of gray. <laughs> It's and lighter the, or it's darker, depending on how that frequency hits that trigger, but it's always going to be some shade of gray. But it's only gray because it's one color. One and color. And it's not black. The because rod black, is picking it up, but, oh yeah, it's not black. Because black contains all the colors. At, right. Right. Okay. Oh my gosh. So that's why at night you only see in gray. So we've got this fundamental limitation of vision following from its reliance on, believe it or not, quantum processes. Yet, such is, and I love this this summary. Of, uh, I'm going to take this right out of the right out of the article. Yet, such is the gush of information from the external world that even an attenuated stream supplies enough material for our brains to manufacture a splendid motion picture. Far from being remote and esoteric, quantum mechanics is very much "quote unquote" in your face, technically in your retina. So. Let me just ask a crazy little question. Let's take a big production. And given this information you've just shared with us, if we, if we could tap into that further capability, what, what's been produced by man based on what's available to us 
if we could tap into that, we would see even more than what we see now. The spectrum of what we could see and the shades of colors would be more distinguished. We would we would be able to perceive many more variations of color than we currently do. That's crazy. And it's and it really is an example. Vision and how it gives us sight really is an example of quantum mechanics. And I like the harpsichord analogy. Analogy is really that's so excellent. You, you, we hear like a piano. We see like a harpsichord. And now we have three keys because there's only three. But if if we eventually could find other ways to add to them. Who knows what might happen? I know what's going to happen right now, though. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and we are having some serious fun today. I know that you've been listening, right? So you've been listening with your ears, which behave like pianos. But I'm making you try to think about seeing things through the eyes of not a prism, but through quantum mechanics. If this isn't probably one of the most exciting things you've ever heard, I don't know what would qualify at I don't, this point, I don't right? think anything beats no, this, I just I think this is it, right? So, But wait, if you think this is hot, wait till artificial intelligence meets quantum computing. Okay, let's just make sure that our audience understands. First of all, this is a two-part minimum podcast. He's just laying the groundwork right now for how this really impacts us going forward. Isn't that right, that, Dr. That's, Bolin? That is true. What, what I'm trying to do with this first program is is really kind of get your curiosity up about, because we're it's, it's hitting us every day in the news. It's hitting us in so many different areas. You're talking about it in higher education. We're talking about it in, in investments and in finance and in medicine. And so I wanted to just spend some time, and and on the lighter side, but get your curiosity up about what the combination of these things might really do. And then in the second part, I want to talk about some specific examples of where this can have tremendous impact in different areas of our lives. Perfect. So that is is what we're – so you're going to have to listen to the next part, too. Absolutely. Little – promotion there to keep listening. <laughs> Shameless promotion. It is. Bull, Bull and Alley has more than one alley. You just keep going up one. <laughs> Today, you may think we went up a dark alley that you're not real sure what you're doing. But, you, I, know. you know, I think we were talking in between um, segments, and I think this is uh, to Dr. Bolin's wide skill set and talent, his ability to share information that's very broad and on a very high level and make it what I call streetable. Um, I I don't think there are, I I think there's clearly an audience like we were talking about for this, and and this will draw an interesting audience. But I think more importantly, our existing audience, I think, will really appreciate the, the time that you've invested in kind of spelling it out a little bit more so we could understand it and feel a little more confident when the conversation comes up around the water cooler, yeah. right? And I do. I think this is going to have an impact on all of our lives. Oh, no matter what age doubt. you are. It just, it is. Right. It, it is. So it doesn't matter whether you're a fast learner or a slow learner or you're a Gen Zer or a baby boomer. It's impacting everybody. It really is. And I think, I think one of the, I always fall back on why I want to encourage everybody out there listening 
of why, even if this is outside of your normal area of interest, of why you can use this in your area of interest, whether you think you can or not. And one of my very favorite sayings, and I know Robin has heard this before, but there, there's an old saying, all right, that you're, if, if you're a jack of all trades, you're a master of none, right? That's the old saying. Right. I, I, I changed that. I say you're a jack of all trades and a master of one. And where I draw the distinction Coming out of higher ed, I promise I don't mention names. I won't even mention disciplines. I won't even mention schools because I've been at numerous schools over the years. But people that get, and I'll use the academic one, I'll use PhDs as an example. People that get PhDs are masters of one specific discipline. And at the point of their dissertation, there would probably be only a handful of people that would be as knowledgeable in that one little additional piece of information that they're adding to everything else in that discipline. They've mastered that, but the problem becomes is that you too often they never ever really go beyond that piece of information to apply it to anything useful. That's interesting coming from someone who comes from guilty as charged. I'm just I mean it's just fascinating to hear someone say that. Well, and I'll give you why I think it helped me in a minute, but but let's let's think about what we've just done here. So in my saying, master of one is is you have a calling, you have a passion to an area that you're really supposed to focus on. I, I absolutely believe that for all of us. Mm-hmm. But we're also in community, and there's also all of these other disciplines, and as you learn a little bit about all these other disciplines, there will be things in those experiences that apply to the one thing that you're good at that allow you to expand that far beyond you could get if you only went down that rabbit hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. And so in my personal case, one of the reasons I have, the reason I think the way I think is because even though I have my doctorate in finance and I've got way too many graduate hours in, in economics and accounting and math too, particularly statistics. The, the thing is, is that when I started my PhD in finance, I had never taken a business class. I remember you mentioning that in one never. of your other podcasts. Never. Mm-hmm. My, maybe an accounting class. I, may, I, I take that back. I may have taken an accounting But my bachelor's degree, because I went to school for 11 years part-time while I was working full-time in the grocery industry, my bachelor's degree is is a BLS, a Bachelor in Liberal Studies, which was basically Iowa's way at their state universities after you'd accumulated enough credit hours to get you the heck out and give you something so you'd go away. (laughs) And so, you know, I had my combination of math. I had my combination of History and philosophy and religion, those were all areas I was interested in. I became a jack of all trades with all that wide variety. And when I started focusing on just finance, what I learned about how those other things, the history and how to think about social problems and those, the way I thought about things wasn't limited to just one, allowed me to think much differently about finance than what would have been the normal theory at that point, which is why in the 85, I was probably one of the few people doing behavioral finance. 
Well, that, I, it, that, doesn't it kind of come down to um, it makes you a lot more multidimensional? You're not a one-dimension person. Right. What you just described earlier about the PhD and the the very very fine line of um, determination, education, and calling. But this did make you more three-dimensional. And and the the beauty of it for me was that I also knew very well that I didn't know much of anything about anything else. I knew a little bit about a lot. But I also didn't kid myself into thinking I was an expert in any of them. And the opposite, unfortunately, often happens with PhDs that become absolute experts in one without these other disciplines is in their mind, they must also be experts in other areas that they know nothing about. Boy, this is really risky for you to say. <laughs> but I, I get what you're saying. I think it makes sense. And and I think as as humans, part of why I think it's so important to be in community is because even if you're in your formal learning has been down one path, just the experience of other people in other areas is going to make you a more well-rounded and be more valuable, not only for you and for your family, but for your community, for your church, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of the danger of all of the the social media and the quantum computing and getting somebody else to write all these things for us in chat GPT is we lose in our all of this other all knowledge and the interaction that makes us who we really are. And I think that's a loss that we really don't want to have. I don't, I think it's a loss we can't afford. We can't afford that. There's already a lot of division. There, it is. And so, you know, as you were talking about it in the first set, I was thinking about the whole concept of this as being, is this the final determinant between good and evil? You know, is is AI, which people have been asking for a really long period of time anyway. Yeah. So, but I think that's, I think if we haven't heard about that, I'm sure there will be plenty of things written about how it is the final death of us as human beings. And, and the thing is, you know, I go back even in, in corporations. This was something I, I've read about a long time ago is that this, this beauty of having um, large, large corporations and, and so many people in one building, you can't build community. And, and the one individual that I thought made a lot of sense to me said that really no corporation in their headquarters or anywhere should have more than 200 people in one building because once you get past 200, you can't possibly know everybody else. And so particularly as leaders and as management teams, you, you lose the ability to have an impact and, and effectively pass on the culture of your organization. And I think that's true in corporations. I think that's true in churches. I think that's true in communities. Because you may live in a city of millions, but probably where your neighborhood is is where you're going to be able to have the biggest impact. And I hope we're going to have an even bigger impact on our next session when we come back from this break. Welcome back to Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Boland, here on this edition of Boland's Alley. And uh, I hope you're I hope you're having a little bit of fun following along here today. I think this could be one of my favorite podcasts. Good. Definitely my favorite podcast you've ever done. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, very cool. Thanks. Although I'm not sure what that says about my others. But no, we're, we're they're gonna, all we're good. Gonna... <laughs> but, I, but I think it's real for me, just personally, because I was very happy. I was excited, but cautiously excited 
knowing that I got to participate with you in this conversation. It's just, it's so good to be challenged, and that's what this one does. Yeah, and I, yeah, I hope so. I, I'm going to kind of back into the weeds a little bit here as, as we do this last segment. But again, as I've mentioned before, when we talk about this idea of quantum computing, you're really now combining quantum physics with computer science, right? I mean, that obviously goes with it. And I've talked about this qubits before and superposition and entanglement and all these fun things. But but there was another podcast done recently that, that I listened to, and, and the woman that was doing it was kind of explaining uh, how this second quantum revolution is going to help in a lot of industries. So I'm not going to go into too much detail on that in this program, but, but a lot of the things uh, that she talks about are really promising areas for, for future development in this. Whether you talk about finance, portfolio management, or you talk about supplier management, I mean, there's just going to be all sorts of places where, where this, this is going to be able to, to really, I think, have dramatic impact on us. And so what happens, similar to any technology that's an emerging technology, I mean, think about, I, I remember when transistors came out. Remember, you, you used to have to, you had these tubes if you had your radio, right? And all of a sudden, they were a little transistor, and the thing was really small, and, and you could get new stations. And Again, what happens is initially you have an exciting technology, but the, the idea of the technology is way ahead of the hardware and the ways to actually implement it. In this case, the computer, actual having computers to do this. So when it comes to quantum computing... Uh, one of the things that, that makes it tough is that it really is extremely sensitive to movement. So even though I've talked about these qubits that can process in multiple states, which means they can hold a lot more. I mean, if you had something that had 100 qubits, every qubit you add can now access every other qubit you had. So if you could put together a computer that had 100 quantum bits, it could process two to the 100th pieces of information, which is like trillions more than a standard computer can. But part of what comes with that is that, as you can imagine, subatomic particles are, are very uh, sensitive to outside disturbances. And so you have to keep them – there's a term called coherence – that you have to keep them in, in harmony with one another to actually do computing at the atomic level. Well, there's only a couple ways to do that. You have to slow down the other motion of the atom to where it'll stay together. That means currently you have to operate at almost absolute zero, which is where all motion stops. So you have to have an extremely cold environment, and you have to have a, an environment where there's no outside vibrations possible, or it breaks the chain and they dislink and anything you were going to calculate falls apart. So cold and quiet equals stability. Yes. Right? Yeah. And and now they're working on ways of of not having to get the temperatures quite so cold and how do you make it more stable. But the, but that that's way ahead of the theory at this point. We know it can be done because God's figured out how to do it. We've got photosynthesis, right? Mm -hmm. Photosynthesis is what quantum computing is doing, and it does it at, at room temperature, right? We see photosynthesis outside at normal temperature. So we know it can be done. God's already shown us it can be done. We just have to figure out how do we do it, right? So 
part of what we're trying to do actually is get a better understanding of how photosynthesis actually does work so we can start to apply that. But that's, that's a story for a whole nother day. But part of, again, as I said, you've got – we're so far behind and we get excited with the innovation – of quantum computing, and I know you're going to see article after article after article out there. Some of them are going to be good, some of them are going to be scary, but but it's just like when the internet first started. Everything, everybody started talking about the internet. But what we can't do is think that these are going to solve everything. There are certain types of problems that quantum computing is going to be able to do that classic computers can't, but there's going to be a lot of places where we just need good old-fashioned computers. It just doesn't make sense to do this. Um, so we're going to need some way of uh, kind of predicting in the next 10 years who are going to be the, the winners. You know, Google has put billions into this already. Um, I'm, I'm not going to name other names because you know some of them might be well. So, but I'm just saying a lot of different companies have put billions of dollars into quantum computing to try to come up with how these qubits work and how they don't work. And so it's good. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how, how all this happens coming up. The, one of the last things I want to talk about in this last session is, is a, another recent book called Quantum Supremacy. It's written by a, a physicist that I've read everything he's ever published, I think, um, Michio, Michio Kakao, uh, M-I-C-H-I-O-K-A-K-U. Brilliant, easy to read, fun to read, and and his latest book on quantum supremacy that's only been out a couple of months now uh, talks about you know everybody's now starting to brag about this. By the way, I, I love this one. Um, the Quantum Innovation Institute in China claims that their quantum computer is a hundred trillion times faster than a supercomputer. Now we'll see if that's hmm. actually true, but but. Again, this whole idea of how do we do computing on an individual item is hard to get your, your head around, right? Mm -hmm. And these qubits can spin any combinations up or down. They carry more information. They interact with each other. They can share information with each other. By the way, the fancy word for that is called entanglement, all right? So each time you add a qubit, it interacts with everything else. And so... You're getting a lot more power. You've got a lot of possibilities out there. But they're also very fragile. And I mentioned that idea of, of what they have to how they have to operate. So when we when we think about quantum mechanics and this weird situation where two entangled subatomic particles could be light years apart, and yet when one moves counterclockwise, simultaneously across light years, the other one moves clockwise. Now, think about this. If we believe that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, <laughs> how is it that particles that have become quote-unquote entangled can be light years apart and yet simultaneously react to what the other one does? Which in theory, if something's three light years away, when this one moves... That one would take... Three years before it moves. Right. And it moves simultaneously. That's that's hard to get. So if all we can handle is this idea of in three dimensions, we see this, then isn't it logical that there's something outside of what we can sense that must be causing this action that's not bound by the speed of light or bound by time? 
that's the most logical explanation. I and mean, it's just beyond our capacity. It's beyond our capacity. So outside of time, my, my analogy, my, my cute little analogy to this is that we think about a crank. I had a crank on, on a, uh, a well as a kid. We had a well in my backyard, and I had to crank to get the bucket up, and I'd drown, get the water. Well, think about if you had a crank that was outside of time, okay, and you turned it, and at the ends of that, which weren't bound by time or space, dropped down and were connected to these two entangled. That's why they're entangled. They're on our little crank, right? Mm -hmm. So as I turned the one this way, this one would spin, and simultaneously, this one would spin the other way. We're seeing things that can't possibly happen in our three dimensions because they're three light years away. But if we could see in four dimensions and understood being outside of time, we're really, by the way, that's where the Holy Spirit loves to operate. I'm just going to throw that in for you. Then it makes sense of how that can happen. It also tells us how little we really understand at the quantum level why it works because it doesn't work in three dimensions. There has to be something beyond what our interpretation can be to get to this. We're limited to three-dimensional world. We simply try to make up reasons to explain this based on our limited understanding of the universe. You're faced with a lot of different decisions every single day. An outside observer may not see many of these options that you're facing as you're making these decisions. Only after you make your final decision do all those other possibilities go away and your process collapses to the one choice you make. The process you went through that is similar to what electrons go through in mixture of many possible states, but when we actually measure it, it's magically collapsed to one state. We only see your final decision, just like in quantum physics, we only see the final state of the electron when we measure it. We see your final decision, we measure the electron's final quote-unquote decision, this is how we extract numerical answers from a quantum computer. And in this respect, you're already a quantum computer. And with that, thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to see more like this podcast, please go to Boland's Alley at alleninvestments.com. Have a great day. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Investment advisory services offered through Allen & Company of Florida, LLC, Allen & Co., and its affiliate LPL Financial, LLC, LPL, Registered Investment Advisors. Securities offered through LPL, member FINRA, SIPC.